did you mean what you just sang? I'm setting you up. I'm going to go ahead and tell you I'm setting you up. All right. You just sang that God reigns and he's holy. And we always think of holy as, yes, God is separate from sin. But what holy really means is God is just separate. That's what it really means. He's separate. Separate from what? Everything else. There's a lot of us. Now, you're the only one just like you, but there's a lot of us here this morning. There's only one God in the universe. There's many ants. There's many giraffes. There's many angels, and they have different ranks and all of that. One God, and he is unique and holy. I'm setting you up. He is not like you. He does not think like you. And if you don't understand that this morning, you really, uh, you're going to get thrown for a loop today. Would you join me in Romans 9? Uh, the older men, I'm not saying they're old men, I'm saying older men's Sunday school class, uh, they use my office. And so as I was going in, they were finishing up a question or two after prayer. And I was like, uh-oh, they've been talking about what we're getting ready to talk about. And uh, so I heard one of them ask the other one a question. And well, certainly, and I said, hang on today, because today's passage is going to be right along those lines. Let me say this, we will not always be on this topic, okay? So I thought, if someone just came October 29th, and then they weren't here except maybe till December 3rd, they probably think, this guy's on a hobby horse. This is all he likes to talk about. Actually, we're going through the book of Romans, okay? Have been for a year, so literally like a year ago, I think actually it was January 7th, we started a study in the book of Romans, and up till now, uh, had a month break from it, though, because of Christmas and a vacation scheduled in there. Uh, but here we are back to Romans 9, but I need to start here. You ready? You have a handout in front of you. If you want to use that, you want to fill it in, I want to begin right here. This is where we actually started January 7th. You have four proper perspectives on your handout. I want to touch on those. Really, there were five back in January, but I'm setting up this message. But really, it's more than this message. Some of you right now, this is where you're at in your Christian walk. Some of you, as was mentioned in our announcements, you're like, I have been saved. I know I'm saved. I've never been baptized. I need to do that. You need to see Brandon. Some of you are like, I've been saved. I've been baptized. I've been coming here. I fit here. I need to find out if there's more about me being a member, and I need to come to the new members class January 21st and 28th. That's where you're at. But right here, I'll guarantee you it may be you or someone you're sitting beside. Here's what they're thinking. Tomorrow's January 1st. I need to get a reading plan in the Word of God. I really need to get a reading plan in the Word of God. I may not tackle the whole Word of God, Old and New Testament. Maybe I'm going to find one of those where I'm working my way through the New Testament. But here's what you think. Here's what you've honestly found. Jeff, I've tried it. In fact, I come and I really try to understand these messages. But I just don't understand the Bible. I read it. I just don't get anything out of it. I'm going to give you four proper perspectives. I'm going to tell you, if you will implement these things, it'll shock you what will start happening. If you don't implement these things, you're going to forever be going through like, I don't get anything out of it. Try this. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you, step one. You say, I'm getting ready to read my Bible, or I'm getting ready to listen to my pastor preach a message. What's the proper perspective? I boiled it down to four, four today instead of five back in January. Number one. Say, I don't get anything out of the Bible. What would help? Always approach Bible study prayerfully. Literally right now, while you're writing that note, you need to enter a season of prayer. Many have come in here today 
open your Bible, sing some songs, but you have yet to literally ask God, God, would you please speak to me today? Don't go into the Word without asking God. You say, what do I need to pray for? Direction and protection. Direction. Lord, you lead me. So in other words, let's say you're going to read through the New Testament this year. You're going to read through the Gospels. And you've got a plan. Well, listen, your plan may say you're going to read Matthew 1. But you may read Matthew 1 and end up over here and here and here also. Just say, God, just direct me. Direct me into the truth. Protect me from error. I dare you. Pray that way before you open your Bible. Pray that way before you listen to sermons. Number two, this is important. I just don't get anything out of the Bible. Always approach God's word and his will with a heart determined to obey. You understand what I'm saying? Here's your attitude. Lord, please direct my thoughts and protect my thoughts. Lord, guide me in this. Now, Lord, here's the deal. When you show me something. Are you here this morning? I'm I'm challenging you. God, when you show me something, I'm going to do it. God, I'm going to line up your word, your will for my life. I'm going in saying, I'm ready to do it. Lord, just reveal it to me. That's when he'll open his will and his word to you. Not until. So if you're here, well, I want to know what God's will is so I can decide if I want to do it. He's going to keep you in the dark. But when you honestly say, God, just show me, I'm going to do it. Number three, both of those apply to today's passage. But the third one and the fourth one particularly apply to, here it comes, you ready? You need to know this going in. God and his word are always right. Even when they contradict human logic. I'm going to say some things today that's going to contradict your human logic. Somebody in here is going to get mad at me because of what Paul wrote. I don't get that, but you're going to get mad at me. Don't. Just go in with this attitude. Now... If I misinterpret the passage and I wrongly preach the passage, that's on me and you need to block it out. You need to block it out and that's why you need to pray right now. Lord, give me direction and protection. If this guy's a heretic, don't let it sink into me. You need to be praying that. But Lord, if you've got something for me to see today, open it to me. And Lord, I'm going in knowing your word and your will is always right, even if it may not make sense to me, number four. This is important. The proper goal of Bible study is always to know God. That's the goal. The goal is not to learn a lot of information so you can go on to an online site and win debates. It's not so you can kill the person in the, in the snack room at work. And it's not so you can beat Uncle so-and-so at Thanksgiving and Christmas when Christianity comes up. That's not the purpose We don't study the Bible so we can find answers to questions. You're like, really? No. We don't study the Bible to study Paul and David and Moses and Samuel and all these are wonderful guys. We need to know what what was going on in their life. More than anything, God, what are you doing? What do I learn in this passage about you? That is always the main goal. So I want to ask you a quick question. Do you really want to know God? Careful how you answer that. Do you really want to know God? I'm going to frame it this way. Do you want to know the true God? The only way to know the true God is by studying how he reveals himself. And a lot of you are like, man, this guy's got me a little nervous. I don't know what are you... And you may be even already peeking ahead like, what are we doing? What's wrong? We're going to get there in a second. All right? Do you want to know the true God? If you were here October 29th, December 3rd, you heard me make a confession. And I want to begin there again. I'm not going into it all. But I have struggled with today's topic. I am literally like, I don't know, 180 degrees from where I was in my early 20s 
When I was in Bible college, I was literally on the opposite side of this. And I'm going to tell you, this is my journey. It was a struggle. You say, Jeff, what was your biggest struggle? My number one struggle is I didn't like some of the things I was learning. So I'm confessing to you, I'm going to say some things. And you're going to sit there and say, well, you're not saying it like you're struggling with it. I am not going to say it like I struggle with it. I'm going to say it how the Bible preaches it. But I'm telling you, I don't always like everything that the Scripture says about God. I'm just telling you, if I was inventing a God, I wouldn't invent all the things that the Scripture says. Straight up today, I don't like some things in my message. And you're going to forget that. Those of you that are going to get mad at me. Please understand, I'm with you. I've been right there. I was, I was there. It just wasn't that long ago. You say, well, what, what stopped you from being where I'm at? I just kept reading this. And this kept getting in the way of what I used to think. And so now I'm flipping on the other side of that. So, I mean, this guy's the weirdest preacher I've ever heard. I think he just undermined his own sermon. And furthermore, I think he just blasphemed God. I didn't just blaspheme God. I was honest. If I take that and I begin to accuse God, now I'm crossing the line. But by confessing to you, I struggle with what we're we're getting ready to read in just a few minutes. You're going to see it just by the reading. That's the most important part of today's sermon is just when we read it. That's the most important part. And then you'll see where we're going. I struggle with it. But I'm not being blasphemous. Can I tell you this? Paul, in essence, I believe, is saying the same thing. He struggles with what he's writing when he says in verse number 3, God, it's not possible. I'm secure in Christ. I can never lose my salvation. But God, if I could, I would lose my salvation. I would go to hell if my people, the Jews, could go to heaven. What is Paul saying? I don't like the way it's happening. That's what he's saying. Last week in our Christmas message, I made a big deal how Jesus is a man, perfect man, earthly parent, God parent, the God man. Christ is a title, the Messiah, the anointed one. And we call him Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Son of God. The Son points to his deity. He is God, the Son. Listen to me. This guy's blaspheming by saying he doesn't like some things in in God's plan and some things about God. Listen, Jesus did the same thing in the garden when the man, Jesus, says, Father, I don't want to drink this bitter cup if there's any other way. Translation, I don't like it. Nevertheless, not my will. Yours be done. And he was arrested and he was put on trial and cheated and beaten, and crucified, because that was the Father's will. Jesus the man is like, I'm not crazy about this. Oh, by the way, every time you pray and ask God to change something, you're admitting, I don't like your plan that's going on right now, God. So that's where the preacher is today. Just before we read, because it has been four weeks since we've been in Romans, and you're going to say, man, this sounds like the exact same introduction he's done the last two times in Romans 9. The only reason I'm doing that is not because we don't have other things to say. It's because, frankly, a few weeks ago, I got the right right introduction. It's the right one. So I'm going to frame it this way. You ready? Romans 9, 10, and 11 seem to be odd at first. 
you got chapters 1 through 8, and everything's going great. Chapter 8 finishes with, boy, those in Christ are secure. They can never lose it. And you think we'd just jump to right to chapter 12, where it says, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, based on that, therefore, I beseech you, live. And we're going to get into this very practical day-to-day section. So if you're thinking, it is always heavy theology at Grace View, hang on, we're not going to always be here. You need to get what you can out of it while we're here. We will not always be here. But he's going to talk about Israel. There's this insertion. And some just like skip it. Like, ah, that's just extra stuff. We don't really need it. It's super important. Why? Here it comes. Here's the introduction we're getting ready to read. Here it is. You ready? In the Old Testament, God makes promises to the nation of Israel that they will be particularly blessed. And it's in connection with the coming of their Messiah. Let me say it again. Promises, guarantees from God, the nation of Israel, you'll be blessed when your Messiah comes. Wonderful. Here's the only problem. Jesus has come. We're not seeing the Jews particularly blessed. We're not seeing them put to the front of the nations. In fact, what we see is they are rejecting Jesus. So we have these promises. Jesus comes. They reject Jesus. They're not being put to the front. The blessings don't seem to be happening. So here's what we conclude humanly. Apparently, either, watch this, either, I'm going to make a line, either God's promises aren't true. He made all those. Oh, they're in there. It's all through the Old Testament. All these good things he's going to do for the Jews. Jesus came. They're not happening. In fact, they're rejecting him. So the promises just aren't true. Or somebody says, no, 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 no. And the Jew would say, that's not it. Here's the problem. Jesus is not the Messiah. That's why we're not receiving him. It's going to happen. God's promises are true. It's just not through him. And then here we as Christians go, "Uh uh-oh. That does seem to really throw a problem. But we know Jesus is the Messiah. But they're not being blessed. And they're rejecting. It's not supposed to be happening like this. What's the answer? Has the word of God failed? The promise is not true? Or maybe Jesus isn't the Messiah. If both of those are true, then Christianity has some explaining to do. Would you look with me at verse number 6? We're going to read 19 verses. Verse 6 is a repeat from our last message to get the groundwork. Paul says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Well, it sure seems like it, Paul. God made these promises and it's not happening. No, 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 he says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. God's word is true. The promises are still in effect. How can you say that? Verse 6b is the short version of the answer to 6a, but then all the next three chapters are going to explain 6b. Look at 6b. How can you say that, Paul? It sure seems like the promises have failed. God's failed. No, he's not. Watch. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. I've already preached this. Cliff notes. Ready? There's Israel and there's another Israel. And not all of Israel are included and belong in this other Israel. How's that? Verse 7. And not all children of Abraham. Abraham's the one who was given the promises. He's the first one who said, hey, Abraham. Yes? 
I love you. You don't know who I am, but I love you. I'm going to make you a great man, a great nation. You're going to have many descendants. Through you, the world's going to be blessed. By the way, I love you so much. When people do good to you, I'm going to do good to them. When they mistreat you, they're going to have to deal with me, and it's going to be bad for them. And through you, the whole world's going to be blessed through this descendant that's coming. And you're going to have land and prominence. I love you. Verse 7, here's the answer. Not all children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So they're not all children just because they're physical descendants. Say, really? We talked about how Abraham doesn't just have two sons. You're like, oh yeah, I remember. There's this Ishmael and then Isaac's second. No, he had eight sons total. But watch what the Bible says. But, Paul says, quote from the Old Testament... Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Okay, got it. It's not all eight sons. It's the Isaac line. That's the blessed line. And the Jew stands there and goes, yeah, exactly. We're in that. That's why we're expecting the blessings. Why aren't they happening? Verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Again, not all of Abraham's descendants. And he makes it real clear. For this is what the promise said. Who are the ones that had the promise? God says, again, a quote from the Old Testament, verse 9 in the middle. God says, about this time, next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So Abraham, it's not going to be Keturah's future sons and it is not Hagar's son, Ishmael. It's going to be this line right here, Sarah's son, the, the barren wife, the older wife who cannot have children, who's well past childbearing age and she's never been able to have children because she was barren. She's the one. She's going to have the promised child. Okay, okay. And again, the Jew says, yeah, we still got that. We're in that. That's us. Verse 10 is where it gets tricky. And not only so, not just Sarah over Hagar and Keturah. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So Paul is a Jew preaching to the Jews here. He says, yes, it was Abraham and then Isaac was the line and now Isaac's going to have kids with a lady named Rebekah. But here's the difficult thing. Here's going to be the part where our brain doesn't like it. So she's conceived children by one man, even our forefather Isaac. Though they were not yet born, they're twins, literally still in the womb, not born. This is a key phrase. And had done nothing. They're not even born. They haven't done anything either good or bad. Well, it's because that one's a bad one. It's because this one's the good one. No, they've not done either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works. Oh, it's because Jacob was good. No, he wasn't. Esau's better, frankly. I'll just tell you that. Go study the Old Testament. Esau's better. But the Bible says, not because of works. And as I said a few weeks ago, we usually follow that phrase with, it's not because of works, but because of faith. That's how we say, it's faith. Paul doesn't do that here. He's going bigger and deeper than faith. He says, not because of works, but because of him. It's because of him. Not because of works. It's not because Jacob was better than Esau, or Esau's really bad, and Jacob's like, okay. No, not because of works. Before these twins are even born, it was already said, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Verse 13 blows our minds as it is written. 
This is a quote from God. This is right out of Malachi. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And you can read that, and you guys can soften it a hundred ways. But if you soften it a hundred ways, you're taking the teeth out of the text. The Bible's clear. Before they're even born, God says, that one I love and that one I hate. That one's going to receive the blessing and that one's not. That one's going to live forever in heaven. That one's not. And right now you're going, I'm starting. And I don't like you anymore. I'm just reading, guys. I'm just reading. It's not my fault. You say, I think you're off on the wrong track. If that's the case, then look at our text, verses 14 to 24. Why does Paul ask this? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul answers, by no means. In other words, don't ever say that. But it sure looks like it isn't there injustice. These boys aren't even born. And God's already determining and making decisions. And God's already saying, I love this one and I hate that one. And that one's going to serve that one. And that one gets the blessing. And that one's not even going to... I get it. Paul knows exactly what we're thinking. He's heard this all before. His answer is, Injustice on God's part? By no means. For, here's why. He says to Moses, Exodus 33, watch this, this is so important. Here's what God says. Oh, I'm going to read it slow, but I'm not, I'm not going to make comments much. Verse 15, you ready? God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Unquote. Paul, now commenting on that, verse 16. So then, oh, this is hard for us to swallow. So then, it, it could be the purpose of God. It could be salvation. It could be the grace of God. All of those things are tied in that word, it. So then, Paul says, it depends not on human will. Or exertion, not on him that runs, or him that here this morning says, I will become a Christian today. You will not decide when you will become a Christian. Because the Bible says, so it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For, here he goes again, he's Old Testament, keeps getting his information from Scripture. For the scripture says, always where you want to get your information. What's the scripture say? Scripture says to Pharaoh, you are not going to like verses 17 and 18. I'm just telling you. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you. Can I just add one little preposition and I'm not harming the, the verse Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that I might show my power on you. I raised you up so I could show my power on you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. I will use you to bring my power on you and then I will be famous throughout the whole world. That's what God says. Now Paul concludes. So then... He has mercy on whomever he wills. He's God. And, we don't like this, he hardens whomsoever he wills. 
And you're like, Jeff, you're saying this with such force. Like you agree with it and like you like it. I agree with it. I'm not telling you I like it. But it's the fact. He has mercy on whomever he wills. And, well I like this part over here. And he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 19. Logical. You will say to me then. Paul knows. I I get it. I know it. I'm ahead of you. Why does he, God, still find fault with man or with Pharaoh? Why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? If he's done that and they just do that, how can he find fault? They can't resist his will. Translation, that's not fair. Verse 20. Paul's answer. Who are you, O man? Man? Smaller than one grain of sand at Myrtle Beach as compared to all the beach and all the grains of sand on the entire Atlantic seaboard. You compared to God? Paul's answer is, who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Why have you made me like this? This is another Old Testament. It was in the offering video. I didn't know it would be there. Thank you, Joyce. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Does not the potter have the right to make same lump? What are you going to make there? I'm actually making two things. I'm going to make with this... And this, this part's over here. And we'll make an honorable use vessel and a dishonorable use vessel. Verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order... To make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called not from the Jews only but also from the Gentiles. Do y'all feel sorry for me yet? I feel sorry for me. Not really. I've got to try to make sense of this. Now listen, this is a very deep and very complicated passage. You realize that already if you were paying attention at all. But can I say this? If we really look at it and we really step back, though it's difficult, there are three, I'm going to really, clear, simple truths. There's a lot of complication, but if we really step back and boil it down, there are three clear, simple truths. I hope you see these three things more than anything else. Number one, if you want to write it down. God is just in his dealings. Let me say it again, because we're thinking he's not. God is just in his dealings. God is just. You say, Jeff, how can you say that? Because the Bible says God is just. Not because Jeff emotions think he's just, or Jeff's mind makes sense and thinks he's just, because the Bible says he is just. Would you look again at verse number 14? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? 
Is there injustice on God's part? Paul, having just said, verse number 13, before these two little twin boys still in the womb have even been born, Rebecca's already told the older's going to serve the younger, and God loves Jacob, but he hates Esau, and that's going to determine the direction and the destination of each. We hear that, and Paul says, I already anticipate what you're thinking. MacArthur frames it this way. Listen carefully. Quote, In light of human wisdom and standards, especially in democratic societies, America, where all people are considered equal before the law, the ideas of election and predestination are repulsive and unacceptable. He's right. That's what we see. He says those doctrines, it is claimed, could not possibly characterize a God who is truly... He uses two words. I would add another one. He says they cannot possibly. It's what we think. Those doctrines, election, predestination, can't possibly characterize a God who's truly just and righteous. I would say most people, before they make it there, they start with this word. A God who's truly loving cannot do that. Oh, and by the way, if he's truly just and righteous, he really can't do what this sounds like. Completing the quote. This is not to be mean. This is Jeff Bartlett at times in life and still in other areas. I'm still there. He says, to the saved, put yourself in that category if that's you, to the saved but ignorant, that's not name calling, that just means uninformed, to the saved but ignorant or immature mind, God simply could not do such a thing. And to the unsaved mind, they don't have the Holy Spirit in them. They read this. They hear this. MacArthur says to the unsaved mind, a God like that would not be worthy of recognition, much less worship. You you, you see that? Here's the unsaved mind. This is the God you guys are promoting? Are you serious? I don't acknowledge that God. And you're crazy if you think I would worship that God. Forget it. I want no part of that, God. And even the saved, beginner, immature, ignorant, uninformed mind says, no, 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 no. hold hold on, he's he's good, hold on. Don't don't listen to him, and don't read that. He's really good, I promise. What's going on, Lord? This is not right. And we struggle. Look at verse 14 with your eyes. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Let me preach for just a moment. See, I think you've already been doing that. No, we've been teaching. Been teaching. Let me preach for a moment. We have no right as arrogant men to take God and put God on the defendant's stand. I'm a man or I'm a woman. Oh, by the way, I'm an American man or woman. And you've got some explaining. Guys, you have no right, neither do I, to put God on the defendant's stand. And we take the stance of prosecution and start accusing God about justice and injustice. Paul says, I'll have none of it. You say, what does Paul do? Paul, what's your answer? It sure does look like God is unjust. Paul says, our salvation is never about justice. Say it again. Our salvation is not about justice, it's about mercy. And so he quickly alludes to God can have mercy on whom he wills. And he can have compassion on whom he wills. Translation, you ready? If there's apparent injustice in all of this, oh, if you get this next sentence, you have a chance to interpret this passage. 
If there's injustice, it's that all of us are not in hell at this moment because we've sinned against God. And he said, the soul that sins shall die. Jeff should not be here right now. He should be in hell. If there's injustice, that's the injustice. The injustice is not on God. Let me illustrate. Y'all remember the golden calf incident? Raise your hand if you remember the golden calf incident in the Old Testament. So Moses has brought down the Ten Commandments. Presented them to the heads of Israel. They've all agreed. Everybody's in. Tell God we love that contract. We're entering into that covenant. We're all in. Moses goes back up to the mountain to ratify the covenant. While he's gone, his brother Aaron leads the people in gathering jewelry and they make and mold a calf, a cow, so that they can dance around it naked. There's many things going on here. There's debauchery, there's orgy, there's idolatry, there's blasphemy, there's twisting the true God into some image of a bull, all kinds of things. Let me ask you, biblically speaking, how many of the Israelites should have been killed? All of them. Hang with me. All should have been killed. A few of you will remember how many were killed. Listen, God, in his mercy, elected to kill only 3,000. So here's what the historians tell us, maybe 1 million to 2 million. So we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of thousands. And in that, God sees what's happening. Moses stands aside, I'm going to kill them all. Moses says, please don't kill them all, God. No, I'll keep you, Moses, and we'll start over with you. I'm getting ready to destroy all of them. And Moses says, no, please, if you do that, I don't even want to be part of that. Include me with them. Well, you haven't done it. Well, include me with them. And Moses intercedes, and God says, okay, I'm not going to kill them all. And he kills 3,000. Levites, get your sword. Start going through. Start killing. This is real. These are real people just like you. I don't know their names. They're nameless to us, but these are real people back in their day, just like if this were to happen here. And the Levites are going through, and they're killing, and they're killing, and they're killing. And then at 3,000, God says, stop, stop, stop. Literally, right there's one who lives and here's one who dies. So here's my question. Here's my question. Is God unjust in your mind? He killed those 3,000 people. Is he unjust for killing the 3,000? Or does your mind go here? God showed mercy in not killing the 2 million. Let me frame it in another way you can understand, maybe a little better. Tuesday, you're going back to work, and you're having lunch, and you're sitting down with somebody, and you're at McDonald's, and you go to order your value meal, and your partner's over at the table, and finally, you make your way back over there, and they're like, hey, what took you so long? I thought your food already came up. Yeah, it did. You know what, though? I ended up, I saw that guy outside when we walked in, and he looked real needy, and I gave my value meal to him, so I had to order another one. Watch. You just gave a value meal to a needy person that was hungry. What do you think of the other person? Your partner says, you gave it to that guy? Yeah, that guy right over there. Do you not see them over there? Look across the street. Look on the other side. Clemson Boulevard. You see them over there? See those two? They're needy too. Yeah. You, you gave it to him? And you're not going to give it to them? I, I just thought it would be a good thing. I just thought, you're unrighteous. Or is that an act of kindness? You're thinking, dude, I, I, I didn't do it. I didn't do it for you, but I thought it was pretty good. Now you're making me feel bad because I didn't do it for them. Here's what I find. We should never put God on trial, but when we do, we're a lot stricter on God than we ever are on ourselves. God, you're not doing a good job of being the God of the universe, and God could say back, what are you doing with what you have? 
Have you tapped out all of your checking? Have you tapped out all of your savings? Have you tapped out, have you tapped out every credit card you have? Because if you were to do that, you could feed five, six, ten meals to every needy person in Anderson County. Have you done it? Well, no, God. This is it's my prerogative. I chose to do it. Stop telling me how to be God. Translation. I don't have to do anything for anybody. What about our will, Jeff? What about free will, man? This is our, what about us and what we want? The free will of man. Well, I'll tell you about it again. You're not going to like me, verse 16. Let's just see what the scripture says. So then it depends not on human will or exertion. So it's not on our works, it's not on our will, but on God who has mercy. Listen carefully. No one just decides they'll become a Christian. No one just decides they'll get saved. Can we have John 6, 44? Would you look at this? We've used it before. Please look at this. No one, this is Jesus, says, no one can come to me. By the way, you have to come to Jesus. I'm going to make that clear in just a moment. Jesus says, but here's the, here's the foundation. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, so he sent me, he must draw you. Note the word draws. And when he does that, I will raise him, the one that does that, the one that's drawn, I'll raise him up on the last day. Literally before that, Jesus says, you must come to me. You must put your faith in me. I'm the bread of life. If you come to me, you'll never hunger spiritually. You'll never thirst spiritually. I'll satisfy you and I'll be enough to get you to heaven. You have to come to me. But, oh, by the way, no one can come to me unless the Father which sent me draws. Remember the word draws. Can we have Acts 16, 19? What word do you think in this verse is the exact same word? Same word. I'm not going to the background of Acts 16, 19. Just look at what it says. And when her owners, here's a demon-possessed girl that Paul and Silas exercised through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the power of Jesus' name, they kicked devils out of this girl that before had this ability to predict people's future. And so she has these masters and owners. And I said I wasn't going to give the background, but now I'm finding myself doing it. Here we go. So her masters and owners make money off of this girl's ability because she has demons in her, and these demons can. And so people come and pay money. Would you please tell me about this? And I, you have a grandmother that is, and her name is, and they're like, oh, wow. Yeah, demons know stuff, okay? So they're telling her this, and they're using it to make money. Paul and Silas say, come out of her right now. The, the demons come out of her that hour, and now she doesn't have her ability anymore, and her owners are ticked off. So watch what they do. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Note, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Anybody want to guess within yourself what word is the exact same word as draw in verse 44 of John 6? Close. Dragged. Jeff, what about our human will? Let me tell you something. Jeff Bartlett, as a nine-year-old boy, went to a Bible camp, had no plans to become a Christian, had no desire for God. But in June, on a Wednesday night, the first or second Wednesday night, I think it was the second Wednesday night of June, 1979, God dragged me. He dragged me. I had no choice. I'm sitting there listening to my granddad preach. I'd heard Ed Yeoman on Monday and Tuesday night, rock my world. And God's like, tonight, you are coming. And I came. 
and I put my faith in Christ. You're like, yes, you, you put your faith in Christ. I absolutely put my faith in Christ because he dragged me. He drew me. Have you ever been drawn? You've been dragged. It's a good thing. It's really good. Paul and Silas's will was overpowered. Write this down. I have to balance this. This is not in Paul's text. I'm stepping outside of Paul's text. Human faith, your faith, is imperative to be saved. With all I've said, you probably think I need to camp out here. But I can't. We have other things to cover in the text. But the Bible, the whole counsel of God is crystal clear. Listen, human faith placed in Jesus is absolutely essential. Can I say this? No one is saved from their sins without believing in Christ. And can I add this? It happens in a moment of time. You say, I don't remember the moment I started. That's fine. If you are a Christian, it means you have put you. You did it. Like, man, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. I'm not understanding what you're saying. You're making it sound like it's all God. And now you're saying we have to do something. If you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are not on your way to heaven. If you have ever done that, then you are on your way to heaven. And if you're on your way to heaven, there was a point in time where just moments before you were not trusting Christ. And moments later, you are trusting Christ. I do believe in you. I do receive you. It is imperative. No one goes to heaven without believing in Christ. But Romans 9 and John 6 proves, listen and write it, even the faith to believe, you have to have it, you have to exercise it, but even the faith to believe originates with God and not from within you. I didn't get saved on that Wednesday night because I was better than the other boys beside me. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 We hit this a few Wednesday nights ago. Would you look at that on the screen? For by grace, you have been saved through faith. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. There's three things in that. By grace. Then we have this middle thing. You've been saved. Salvation. Grace. Through faith. Watch this. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. I am not a Greek grammarian. I, I don't, I, I, you know, I used to know a few things, I've forgotten it. It's just not my thing. But I know this, there's a thing among the Greek grammarians. We have one here this morning, to my right, sitting with his father. He probably, I'm sure, knows this. There's a thing called Granville Sharp's Rule, which says, watch that, and this, see that pronoun, this, it may point back to grace, it may point back to have been saved, but it has to, by Greek grammarian rules, it has to point back at least to the nearest thing to it. The nearest noun is faith. Listen to me, even the faith. You have to have it, but even the faith to believe Christ comes from God. Even the faith has to come from God. Now, would you look at Romans 9, 17? For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Paul just keeps on using Old Testament examples. We're not sure 
There's a possibility it was a young man by the name of Amenhotep II who did rise to become an Egyptian pharaoh. And if he was the one that the Bible's talking about here, he's reared literally at the same time as Moses. They're growing up together in Egypt. They're both wicked sinners. They both commit murder. But God's going to raise this one up to particularly a high rank among people. The most powerful man in all the world. He'll become Pharaoh. And he's probably going along thinking, man, it's my hereditary. It's my smarts. It's my suave. It's my just authoritative power. It's my demeanor. And I'm moving to the front. And I'm doing all these wonderful things. And I'm the most powerful. No, 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 no. You're not responsible for any of it. God raised you up. Why? Because God's going to show his power on you. They both live... They're both sinners. They're both wicked. Moses receives mercy because God wills to give Moses mercy. And frankly, Pharaoh is hardened. And he's raised. And then he hardens. Moses comes and says, let God's people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And God crushes Egypt. And here comes Moses again. Okay, okay, let's make a deal. Here's the deal. Let my people go. Forget it. More judgment. More plagues. Send for Moses. Okay, okay, we're ready to talk. Here comes Moses. And this just keeps going back and forth ten times. Verse 18. Paul comes to the conclusion. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. God in his sovereignty withdrew all divine influence on Pharaoh's reason. He became very unreasonable. Everybody around him like, Pharaoh, our crops are gone Our animals are gone. We're sick. We have flies. We have locusts. We have frogs. It's just one after another. Just let them go. It's not worth it. You're killing that. No. Why? God hardened his heart so he could keep showing his power. Write it down. What's God's purpose? God had a righteous purpose. His purpose was this, that his fame would be spread among all the world as God continues to illustrate and demonstrate his power over Pharaoh. I raised you up so I could show my power on you so that I will be famous. And we hear that and we don't like it. I get it. I understand. That is the longest point of our points today. Not out loud, but inwardly all God's people said, Amen. Not out loud. I said inwardly. Inwardly. Number two, we'll be faster here a little bit. Clear, simple, straightforward point. Man is accountable for his sin. Man is accountable for his sin. You say, Jeff, how do we know man's accountable? Because the Bible says so. Would you look back at verse 18 at the second part of the verse because that's a very controversial passage. In fact, just look if you would, verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. Listen carefully. In the room this morning, there were people that walked in here this morning already at verse 18a, already there. But not at verse 18b. And still are not. And if you know what I'm talking about, you're probably saying, that is me. I am there on 18a. He gives mercy to whom he will. But I'm not ready. I don't know. I don't know that what I was like saying. I don't understand 18b. But, and it's very controversial and it's very divisive. And you'll know where I stand. Are y'all still with me? This is important. This will be the most difficult portion of the message. 
It's at this point when the Bible says, and he hardens whomever he wills, that someone says this. I happen to know the book of Exodus well enough. Jeff, if you'll go read it, you'll find that Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord. So when Moses gets there and starts this, you know, negotiating, Pharaoh hardens his heart first, and then later on, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. You need to check your chronology, Jeff. And here's their translation. God hardened Pharaoh's heart because Pharaoh hardened his heart against God already. He kind of had it coming. As though that explains verse 18. Here's four clues, though, that may present a problem with that interpretation. Clue number one, Paul doesn't mention Pharaoh hardening his own heart. In this discussion, New Testament, please listen to what I'm about to say. The apostle Peter in one of his epistles says, Paul knows things. He was shown things by God that I and none of the other apostles know. Paul knows things and he calls what Paul's writings, he calls them scripture. And he says people who don't understand God or understand the scriptures wrestle the scriptures and they wrestle what Paul says. What Peter's saying is, I don't know, I think this is it. I think it's this stuff right here. So number one, what we notice, Paul doesn't mention that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. He just says God hardens whom he wills. Second clue, it'll be on the screen. Exodus 4, 21, please watch this. You say, I know my Old Testament and I know that when Moses got there, but watch verse verse 21 of chapter 4, look at it. So we're going back. And the Lord said to Moses, Moses, when you go back to Egypt, uh uh-oh, you just got the time frame, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart. Think. You say, yeah, but when he gets there, Pharaoh hardens his heart, and later on God hardens his heart, but look what happens before Moses even gets to Egypt. That is already determined Because God's already said, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Would you look again at verse 18? I think the word and is so important in verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. That literally means both sides of verse 18 are equal. Both are equal. If you want to write it down, that means both the mercy is by the will of God and the hardening is by God's will. And we hear that and we say, I don't understand that. Go back to verse 13. There's these two boys they have not even been born yet. And God loves this one and hates this one. This one's going to be blessed and that one's not. And verse 11 says it's before they've done good or bad. I know we want to place good on Jacob and bad on Esau. But before that was done, God already did this. And if that's not... Strong enough clue, verse 19 is. Look at verse 19. I know what I've just said sounds heretical to the human mind, to the American mind, to the mind that has read all these wonderful things about God. But watch what verse 19 says. It's a clue that we're literally on the right track. So God hardens Pharaoh. He gives mercy to Moses. Moses didn't earn anything. God just gave mercy to to Moses, but he hardens Pharaoh. And Paul says, I know where you're going. So verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? God can't find fault then. He he, he couldn't resist God's will. It's God's fault. It's not Pharaoh's fault. And Pharaoh, by the way, is representative of many. I ask you this morning, and I know that was the deeper section, getting ready to go to the third, the easier part. Some of you are still thinking and tracking. If you've lost it, please come back in a moment. But if you're still tracking, here's all I would ask. Look at verse 19. 
You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Why doesn't Paul just say, oh, oh, if you're thinking that, let me tell you why God still finds fault. It's because Pharaoh hardened his heart first and then God gave him what was coming. Don't misunderstand. Yes, Pharaoh started it. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. McLean, so I ask you this morning, can God harden and still hold man accountable for his sin? I mean, really, if God raises people up and God allows hardening, can he really still find fault? Yes. By the way, let me sit where you're at and here's my answer to that. Here's my answer to me. Uh, Jeff, that is not a good enough reason. Paul, what do you have to say? Here's Paul's answer. Questioner, the one thinking that way, you are a mere man and God has the rights of the creator. He's the creator. He can do what he wants. You, little man, don't question God. To which I say, but God, please don't listen. I'm talking to Paul. And God says, yeah, but he's inspired. I'm like, yeah, but let's pretend like he's not inspired. Let me talk to the guy, Paul. Just Paul, the uninspired. Paul, that's not a good reason. The I'm just a man, you've not given us a reason To which God says, that's what you have right now. I think we'll know more later, but right now, you're just a man. Don't question the creator. He has creator rights. McLean offers the following. So to be clear, is man accountable? Can God really judge and say, I find fault with your sin? McLean is right when he says, if any man, listen carefully, this could be someone here. If any man ever goes to hell, and a good many men will go unless they turn, it will be his own fault. It will be because he rejected the mercy and long-suffering of God. So Jeff, you just kind of added to this text, and this text doesn't include that, and this text here just kind of falls, I understand. But McLean is right, because all I know is, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? And then he points out, God will find fault. God will judge. Lastly, number three. God is sovereign over his creation. God is sovereign over his creation. So God is just in all of his dealings. Man is accountable for his sin. Is accountable. And number three, God is sovereign over his creation. If you were watching the video during the offering, you saw a potter. Look at verse 20. Let's read verse 20. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And you say, Jeff, what is that vessel, honorable, dishonorable? Listen carefully. Let's keep it practical. You ready? So here's a potter and he has a lump of clay and he starts making something. Hey, what what are you making? Oh, I'm making something for an honorable use. What's it going to be? It's going to be a vase that sits up on a shelf, and we're going to put flowers in it, and we're going to put lights on it, we're going to decorate it and glaze it. Oh, cool. Oh, what's that going to be? That's going to be a plate, and people are going to eat off of it. And what's that going to be? Oh, that's going to be a bowl. And what's that going to be? And this is going to be a container, and it's going to store beautiful, wonderful things, like the most treasured earrings and necklaces, and they're going to be put in here, and it's going to be glazed and decorated, and it's going to be put on, on the nightstand or on the dresser. Wonderful. Okay, what are you doing with this part? Oh, with this part here, I'm going to make a trash can. What are you doing with this? Well, we need a toilet. 
a commode. Can a potter not have the same lump and decide I'm going to make those things with that and with this part I'll make that? You say, well, the potter has every right to do that. Some for honorable, some for dishonorable. The same lump. And I know this is very emotional to even think through. So I'm not going to the depths of it. Just look at Paul's question in verse 22. We've been asking questions. Paul answers with a question. What if God, you need to consider this, What if in the whole scheme of things, God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order, so here's the flip side, in order to make known the riches of his glory from vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So Jeff, this sounds, listen, boy, if you're tracking, you you may have caught this. You ready? Jeff, this sounds like why God created sin and why God originated sin and why God invented sin. This passage is not about God inventing sin. Can we have James 1.13? Here's the Bible. Look at James 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. God's your fault. You made me like this. It's my fault I fell into that. You knew it was too much for me. You knew my tendencies. It's your fault. No, no, no. It goes back to Adam. Okay, but Adam, you knew Adam couldn't handle it, and you put up a test. It is your fault. Watch this. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So no one can cop out, God, it's your fault. You made me like this. But I do want to biblically, out of Romans 9, finish with this thought. Why? Did God allow evil? Because clearly he has. Romans 9, to 24 gives at least three reasons. Number one, why has God allowed evil in the first place? Jeff, you just alluded that he didn't create it. He didn't invent it. It's not on God. And it gets real murky. And I don't have all the answers, but I know this. God allowed it for at least three reasons according to this text. Number one, to demonstrate his holiness and his wrath against sin. God could say, hey, I'm holy and I'm wrathful against sin. But throughout eternity, people would go, okay, that's great. What sin? I don't know, but he really doesn't like it. So God allows sin so he, so he can show his holiness and separateness from sin and that it cannot be in heaven with him and that God hates sin and judges sin. The second reason God allows evil and wickedness is to display his power. And his power is seen not only in creation, but his power is seen in his destruction of things and in his saving of things. So he saves, he destroys, but he creates. God has this power, and we don't know those latter two unless sin. We don't know them to their fullest unless sin comes into the picture. And God says, I want people to know all parts of me. I am holy, I am wrathful against sin, and I am a powerful God. I can save and I can destroy. And one of the ways I will use wickedness and evil is to demonstrate those things, number three. Why does God allow evil? To display his unearned love and mercy. Unearned love and mercy. And you guys know where that's all best seen. It's all best seen at the cross. We sang about it earlier. Put our gaze on Christ and his shed blood on the cross. Why? What do we see there? We see that God is holy. So holy, he must do something about our sin before we can go to heaven, so he puts it on his son. God is wrathful against sin, so he judges our sin. It's not fair, but he judges, that's unjust, but he judges our sin on his son. And God is so powerful, he can save an entire entire humanity through the death of his son. That's how powerful he is. And God loves us and gives us mercy that is totally, 100%, unconditional. Unconditional. Look at verse 24. 
even on us whom he has called. Listen carefully to me, Grace View, Christian, South Carolinian, listen carefully. Even on us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, hear me, South Carolinians. God's mercy and grace is never based on a person's race. It's never based on a person's nationality. It's never based on a person's intellect. God saves the smart. Or God's got something against the smart. He only saves the middle or the bottom. Has nothing to do with that. Or here's one. It has nothing to do with our morality. God saves good people. That'd be wonderful. The only problem is there are no good people. It's never based on that. You finished your notes. I'm going to quickly give you things to take with you. Like, Jeff, what am I supposed to do with this message? Will you listen? I'm going to fire them quick. You ready? So, Jeff, what should I do with this? You might want to start here. God, I don't understand you. That's where I am. God, I don't understand. Please, I... Guys, do this while I'm saying this. Do this right now. God, you were way over my head. This is over my head. I thought I knew you. But I want to know you. I want to know the real you. I don't want to know the fake you that I've invented. Lord, 2018, I'm going to need the real God, and I want to know you. So, Lord, help me to know if this is all true. Help me to dig into this and let your Holy Spirit drive it into me. I want to know the real you because you are way out of my league. Start right there. Number two. What are you supposed to do? Listen. Do not accuse God in your mind. Do not. You say, Jeff, I'm having a hard time. Some of these verses, just logically and emotionally, God is wrong. If this is what, he's a monster. Do not accuse God. Confess it if you're doing. You say, on what basis? The Bible says he's good. And that's enough. But he doesn't look fair. He is fair. None of that clay None of those vessels used for dishonor. It's all sinful clay. Yes, some is saved and some is not saved. None who are not saved are going to have unfair treatment. They will only receive what they deserve. Third thing you should do with this. Oh, please get this. Please get this. If you're here this morning and you did this, somewhere along the way you're like, Jeff, based off of this, and what you've been saying, us getting saved and going to heaven isn't even like the main thing. If you've been listening, you're like, us getting saved from hell and going to heaven, this sounds like that's not even the main thing. Ding, ding, ding. You win the interpretation prize. You are right. We are made things Made to make him look good. Do y'all know that every week when we come here and God manifests his presence in a way that you feel like, I don't know what it is. People there are just friendly. In the worship time, I kind of get engaged. And I don't always like what the Bible says, but I end up encountering God. He's in my face. Do you know every week he does that and you feel it? By the way, I love when I feel it. You love it when you feel it. That's always grace. He never has to do it. The key is, will you come when there is no feeling? Or do you only serve him for feeling? Will you come when there is no goosebump? Will you say, God, I am worshiping you by faith, not by feeling and not for feeling. I really like it when the feelings come. Thank you, Lord. But I'm here for you. I'm going to worship you by faith. I'm going to serve you by faith. And it's not about me. 
you win the prize. Here's your takeaway. So, man, it's going to be the weirdest finish to this message I could have imagined. Listen carefully. Listen carefully. Are you listening? Today is the day. This is the message to trust Christ for your salvation. You say, it doesn't sound like it. If ever there was a day, here's what you should have learned. No, no, Jeff, you don't understand what I've done. Will you please read verse 16 and verse 23? You'll see this word, mercy, mercy. It is not about how good, but Jeff, I've done this. That's the wonderful thing. He's so powerful. It is free, unconditional. You say, I've already been saved. Don't you dare be haughty. You had nothing to do with it. I'm white. I'm an American. I'm a Republican. Wonderful. God's none of those things. He saved you in spite of those things. Here's what you need to get. You say, I'm not yet saved. Today is the day because you just learned this. God saves people because he drags them to him in the strangest ways. Today, all you have to have is verse 16. So then it depends not on human will. Or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What if God, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. God, is that me? Did you prepare me for glory? I can tell you the answer. Will you right now put your faith in Jesus? Right now. I told you a while ago. It's a moment. Will you right now? Jesus. I don't understand it all. This is the craziest message way overhead. All I know is I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to be one of those. I don't want to be like Pharaoh. I don't want to be like Esau. I don't want to be like Ishmael. God, I just want your grace like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I just want free grace, unconditional. I have nothing to give you. Please give me that salvation. If you will do that and believe that he'll do it, oh, he does it. He did it for me. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Wow. I don't know what else to do today. In a moment, we're going to sing. All of our